I want to wish you a happy day, Labor Day weekend. I hope it's gone well. I know uh, that those of you who have school-aged children, your week has gone really well because you got to send them back to school, am I right? No offense, kids, but we're, we're, we're glad to see you go. Um, <laughs> uh, we, yeah, uh, I, I want to uh, speak to my city church folk before we get into the message today uh, because, you know, this series like this bystander series are why we exist as a church. This is a series where we're unpacking why we believe what we believe about Jesus, and that's an important part of helping people believe and thrive in Jesus, which is our mission. And so to put on the the, uh, services like this, like this series, it takes two things from people who call City Church your church. It, It means that we have to have people who live with purpose, people who recognize who God created them to be so they can do what God created them to do. It takes people who get clear about their unique personality, their passion, uh, their abilities, and their spiritual gifts and engage them in the greatest movement ever. It takes people who live with purpose, and then secondly, it takes people who give with purpose. When Jesus began this movement that he called the church, he received financial donations to fund his movement. And when you give here to City Church, your giving is making a difference. When you give here, Lives change here. And when you give to Jesus' movement, you place your finances into the flow of God's blessing. And that is where you want them to be. Now, as I said, in this series, we're unpacking why we believe what we believe about Jesus. And here at City Church, we really do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We really do believe that he is the Savior of the world. We really do believe he can forgive your sins. We believe he can give you eternal life ultimately and an abundant life here and now. That's what we believe. But why we believe what we believe is also important, especially, right, if anybody else is going to believe what we believe. But I think it's also important for us to understand why we believe what we believe, especially when we go through seasons of adversity, Some of the most remarkable people I've ever met are people who go through seasons of adversity and they believe despite the adversity. They they believe despite the challenging circumstances, the relational crises, the financial crises, even the health crises. I call these the believe in spite of kind of people. And these people have a faith that gives them a sense of confidence where they're not easily shaken. The believe in spite of kind of people have a kind of joy that defies logic. They have a kind of peace that surpasses human comprehension. And in fact, what I've noticed is sometimes the reason people check out Christianity, in fact, it might even be the reason why you're in church today is because you've come across one of these believe in spite of kind of people and their faith has inspired you to check out why they believe what they believe. And you may be thinking, you know, I want to have what they have. I want to have that sense of confidence in life, that that sense of joy, that, that peace that surpasses understanding. But if you could be honest, you would admit, but I have some doubts. I have to admit at times I'm a bit of a skeptic. Well, if you have doubts, if you're a bit of a skeptic, know that you're welcome here. Now, one of the uh, skeptics of our generation among scientific circles is a man by the name of Dr. Francis Collins. 
Now, some of you may know of him. He was the head of the National Institute of Health. He's also, he's a molecular biologist and a medical doctor, and he headed a team that, le that led a project called the Human Genome Project. It took 15 years. Now, a, gene a genome is simply an organism's DNA, right? And so he spent 15 years with the team unpacking the 3.1 billion letters that make up the sequence in DNA that's in every cell in your body. It's pretty fascinating. It's an amazing accomplishment. Now, let me tell you why I'm telling you about that discovery. Because when he presented the scientific research behind the human genome, in his introduction, he also shared a little bit about his spiritual journey. You see, he was a skeptic. And he believed that anything related to faith was just superstition. These are his words. I became quite an obnoxious atheist with whom you would not have enjoyed having lunch. I felt it was part of my mission. Okay, so think about that. This is his purpose in life. <laughs> it was part of my mission to point out that all that really mattered could be easily discerned by science and everything else was irrelevant, especially faith. Now, something happened in Dr. Collins' journey that led him to reconsider what he believed and didn't believe. You see, while he was in medical school uh, doing his residency, he uh, was doing his residency in various hospitals in the North Carolina area. And he kept coming across these patients with terminal illnesses who had a very strong faith in their destiny. He said these patients kept telling him things like, well, I believe in Jesus and because of that, I'm not afraid of death. I know my destiny. I'm going to be in the Father's house with Jesus forever, and I'm going to see family who've gone before me, and so I'm not afraid of what I'm going to face. And he said, well, he said that things like that, expressions of faith like that, really annoyed him, and he didn't like it. Well, he said one day he was talking to a woman who was dying of a heart condition. Uh, you know, she just had days to live, but it was a part of his duties to, in, in the residency to go and talk with his patients. And he said she was saying the same thing. She was talking about her faith in Jesus, talking about heaven and going to heaven to be with them. And then he said that she paused and she looked at him and said, Doctor, I've told you what I believe. What do you believe? And he said when she asked that question, it caught him off guard. He said he felt his face becoming kind of flustered, and he stammered, I don't know what I believe. And he admitted later, again, these are his words, faced with my willful blindness and my arrogance, I began a journey. And for the first time, he seriously considered the evidence for why we believe what we believe about Jesus. You see, he went on a journey, and that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to join us on a journey as we unpack why we believe what we believe about Jesus. I'm asking you to join me as, as I unpack the historic Christian faith, because if you remember last week, I said something about faith. I said, God never asks us to accept anything by faith alone. He never asks us to accept anything by faith without a reason. You see, the historic Christian faith, it's not just hope. 
The historic Christian faith is not some vague hope built upon religious traditions that have been passed out from generation to generation that you just gotta believe. You ever heard that? Well, you just gotta believe. Is that very convincing? It's not very convincing to me. And I'm gonna suggest that when you face adversity, it's not a very good reason for you to believe either. Well, I, I just believe because I just gotta believe. I mean, think about it. I lost my job. And because of it, I lost my house to bankruptcy. Where is God in all of this? Well, you just gotta believe. My marriage is a wreck. My spouse walked out on me. God, why can't you fix it? Well, you just gotta believe. I'm going through trial after trial after trial. Why does a good God let bad things happen to good people? Well, you just gotta believe. And then perhaps the greatest question of all, will the Cowboys ever win another Super Bowl? <laughs> Lord, come on. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm picking on people who say you just gotta believe. Uh, because uh, normally when someone says you just got to believe, they're, they're trying to bring a conversation to the end because something's gotten real awkward for them. Maybe you've been expressing your doubts or maybe you're express, asking some hard questions and they go, oh, by the way, you just got to believe. Okay? The Christian faith is not a faith you just got to believe. There are reasons to believe the Christian faith. The Christian faith is based upon evidence, eyewitness evidence that real life people saw. They saw the miraculous. And our faith is based on what they saw. Those eyewitnesses, or what I'm calling in this series bystanders, because seeing is believing. Now the bystander whose evidence we're looking at is named John. Sherry talked to you about him a little bit earlier. John uh, is one of uh, Jesus' 12 disciples, a part of the inner core, which meant that he left his job, traveled around with Jesus for three years, learning from Jesus and uh, living his purpose within Jesus' movement, but also he saw all of these miracles. And these miracles convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God. And he gave his life to telling other people about Jesus. Because for John, seeing was believing. And as John got older toward the end of his life, you know, because he could tell people what he had seen about Jesus to convince them to believe in him too. He believed Jesus was the son of God. Well, he realized I need to write down what I saw so that others can see my eyewitness testimony so they have a chance to believe too. So he wrote it down in a document that we call the Gospel of John, which just means the good news of John. It's the book that Sherry told you about that we're reading through together. And in the Gospel of John, John unpacks some reasons to believe Jesus is the Son of God, and through his account, he prods us, he pushes us to make a decision based on the credible evidence he presents in John. And he tells us at the end of his account, it's the only gospel writer to do this, he tells us why he wrote his account. This is John 20, verse 30. He wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. His goal is for you to read about these signs and to believe Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you will have life in his name. And so John organized his account around seven miraculous signs that we're studying in this series. So before we look at the second sign, I want to define what I mean by miraculous sign. Because, you know, sometimes people today, they throw that word miracle out there like way too freely. You know, like too many things are miracles. Like, um, and so I want to, I'm going to define miracles. So uh, I was trying to figure out how to, to give you a short definition of miracle. And so I looked at one of the books that shaped my own beliefs and thinking about miracles written by a religious skeptic, a former religious skeptic named C.S. Lewis. And his book is simply entitled Miracles. And in that book, he defines miracle in this way. He said, a miracle is an interference with nature by a supernatural power. So a miracle happens when our, in our closed universe, a supernatural power outside of the closed universe intervenes and does what natural law cannot explain. It's like when God steps into our universe and does what only God can do. And like I said, I think sometimes today people use the word miracle too freely. You know, so we're, we're approaching football season and, and, and ESPN talks about miraculous catches. And I mean, I've seen some pretty great catches, but... I've not seen a miracle yet on the football field. And, you know, we talk about miraculous shots in basketball. And, you know, I, I even heard Adam Levine on The Voice talking about a contestant with a miraculous range vocally. And while the person's voice was pretty great, it was not a miracle. And then, then there's the whole miracle whip thing. Where's my mayonnaise, people? Mm. No offense to my Miracle Whip people, but there ain't nothing miraculous about that stuff. But when a young woman named Mary becomes pregnant without ever having sex, that's a miracle. When a spoken word calms a raging storm, that's a miracle. When stick, six stone jars filled with water immediately become fine wine, that is a miracle. And the miracle we're going to look at today convinced a, a hardcore religious skeptic to believe Jesus is the Son of God. You ready to hear about it? All right, John 4, verse 46. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. That's the first miraculous sign. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Okay, so there's two important details about this account I want us to, to notice before we uh, look at the miraculous sign. First is the miracle, uh, Jesus is in Cana, and so uh, that's where he performed his first miracle. And the royal official, though, was not from Cana. He was from the town of Capernaum, which is about eight hours walk away. Do we have the map that shows where it is? Okay, so see, Capernaum is on top of the Sea of Galilee, and Cana is over in the middle part of the country. And so uh, it took, it was about an eight hours walk from Capernaum to Cana, or if the man had a horse, it would have been about a four-hour horse ride, which is still a pretty long ride. And, and so I was, you know, we don't walk anywhere anymore. 
uh, not long distances. And so I was trying to help you picture how long of a walk this father took. And so we did the Google Maps thing on like what's an eight hour walk from this auditorium and it would be Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine walking from here all the way to Bernie without stopping. It's a, it's a full day's walk or if he was on horseback, it was a half day. So the distance was pretty considerable. The second observation I want us to notice is John tells us this was a royal official. And that means that lets us know that this man was a Sadducee. He was a part of the group called the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees, this is what you need to know about them. They were the educated elite. They were the wealthy estate owners. They were those with political power. And they were religious skeptics. They did not believe in the supernatural. They believed in materialism. Whatever happens in this universe is just in this universe. So they didn't believe in things like the afterlife. They didn't believe in a person's soul. They didn't believe in angels, you know, resurrection, anything like that. They, they did believe in a God, but they believed that God was not involved in human affairs. And because of that, they did not believe in miracles. And isn't it interesting, though, that this religious skeptic, this man with an anti-supernatural bias, traveled eight hours or four hours by horse to ask Jesus to come and perform a miracle. And you know what that tells me? That intellectual beliefs can often get pushed aside when someone you love is suffering. You know, there are times when our skepticism can get less skeptical when we just hope that there is a God who can do something in our lives. And I think when we look at this man's account, I think in some ways through this miracle, God is speaking to the skeptical part in each one of us. You know, some of us have more skepticism, some have less. But it's like through this miracle, he's speaking to the skeptic in all of us. And I just want to say that that's okay. Anyway, so this royal official came eight hours, five, four hours by horse to see Jesus. And what's interesting, when you know the Sadducees, this guy was rich enough, he didn't have to make that journey. He could have sent a servant. He had plenty of servants. He's also politically powerful enough, he could have told a soldier to come get Jesus, go fetch him for me. But maybe he thought, you know, maybe if I show up in person, he'll come. And so this religious skeptic comes to Jesus, and, and the text says that he begged Jesus to come heal his son. And if you look that word up in the Greek, the verb tense isn't, isn't like a father who came and said, hey, Jesus, would you come heal my son? This is him going over and over again. Please, Jesus, please, please. I humble myself before you. Please come heal my son. Throw out his dignity. Throw out his position. Throw out his power. Throw out his worldview. Forget all of that. Forget even his theology. At this point, he's just desperate. Now, Jesus' response to him at first may seem insensitive. So let, let's look at what Jesus said, verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, he's still pleading, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, what Jesus says here, which looks like it might be a criticism, 
you know, you have to remember, he's not saying it just to the Father. What did he say? He said, you people. He's speaking to the Father, but he's speaking to this large crowd around him, both of those who are checking him out, but also of people who are now following him. There's a large entourage. And this is what he says to all the people. You people will not believe until you see signs and wonders, until you see miraculous signs. And I don't think that's a criticism. I don't think that's an indictment. I think Jesus is just saying what is true. Because you have to understand, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's made some pretty outlandish claims. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he has said, I came from heaven. I wasn't just born on the earth. I came from heaven, which meant that he, he existed before he was born. Well, that's sort of weird. And Jesus told people he could forgive their sins. Well, who says stuff like that? And Jesus said that he could give people resurrected life and give people eternal life. Well, that's sort of weird. Why would they believe him? Why would they believe his outlandish claims? And maybe that's the question you have today. Why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I believe in those claims? And you know how Jesus responds to that question? Seeing is believing. You're not going to believe until you see miraculous signs. And that's why I'm going to perform miraculous signs. How cool is that? And I want to point out something else here. It's about the royal official. So if you can follow the storyline, this royal official traveled eight hours, four hours by horseback, all the way to Jesus, even though he didn't believe in miracles and didn't believe in that kind of stuff, and he had never seen a miracle himself. Follow me. Jesus had performed his first miraculous sign in Cana. He was eight hours away in Capernaum. We know that he had performed some other miracles down in Jerusalem, but those, that was days away. He personally had never seen a miracle out of Jesus. So why did he travel all that way? Because he had heard about the eyewitness testimony of others who had seen Jesus perform miracles. He was willing to risk traveling that distance just to have the chance to ask Jesus, not because of what he had seen, but because of what others had seen. And you, you do know that's what I'm asking you to do too. Okay, let's get back to his story. So this royal official had heard what others said about Jesus and what he can do, and the father felt like there were probably only two options. Okay, if Jesus can perform miracles, if he comes back with me, if I can get him there, he, you know, he can heal my son, or he doesn't go with me, he knows who I am. Uh, the Sadducees dressed a certain way, so Jesus knew what this guy believed. And if he doesn't go back with, with me, then my son will probably die. Well, Jesus gave him a third option. This is verse 50. Je Jesus said, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So think about this. Jesus asked this desperate father to do what he has asked people to do for thousands of years, and that is to take him at his word. This father came, and he asked for Jesus' presence, and did you notice Jesus didn't do what he asked him to do? He asked him to be present and to go eight hours back to Capernaum. Instead of giving this royal official uh, what, he, what he asked for, Jesus' presence, Jesus gave him a promise. And he said, if you go, your son will live. And in that moment, that royal official had to decide, and 
you know, if you're a skeptic, you'll follow me. Oh my gosh, I traveled eight hours to get here to have you come heal my son and you just say, go and he will live? But in that moment, he turned and he took Jesus at his word and he headed home. Faith, and this is what I've been saying in this series, faith is always in something and in someone. In this case, faith was in Jesus and he risked what others had said they believed about Jesus and that is that he is the son of God. And faith is in something. And the something that this man had faith in was Jesus' promise. That's all he had. And for thousands of years, he's asked people to have faith in the same thing, his promise. And then he did miraculous signs to prove I can back up what I promise. And that is what I'm asking you to believe today. Okay, so back to the royal official. He, you know, so imagine he had to feel stunned because he had traveled so far. And, and you also understand nobody had ever seen a miracle performed at a distance. All the miracles that had happened so far, Jesus was there. Jesus is telling him, hey, I can perform a miracle long distance. And he started walking back. And, and this uh, father, uh, he takes steps of faith, which is what I'm asking you to do. And let's look at what happened. This is verse 50, 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever just left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This royal official, he starts walking back home. And we don't know how long he walked. Imagine it's an hour. It's two hours. It's three hours. He hadn't seen a miracle yet, but then he sees the servant coming. And the servant tells him, your son, the fever left him. And when he finds out the exact time, he believed. And he went home. And he told his family what had happened. He told his family about the promise Jesus had made, the exact time he made it, and that that's when his son was healed from his fever. And his whole household believed. Isn't that awesome? And I want you to think about this. Why do we even know what happened? Jesus didn't follow him. John didn't follow him. Why do we know what happened? How do we know the son got healed? Because that father, when he re realized what happened, somehow he found John and, and Jesus and the disciples and told them, when he made that promise, my son was healed. And I believed. And my whole household believed. That religious skeptic became a believer. And he became the kind of believer who told others why he believed what he believed. And so I'm, I want to say a word to the church about the implications of what happened because there's a part of the story I haven't really surfaced for you. Think about this. So this religious skeptic, this man with an anti-supernatural bias that Jesus would know, he would know what he believed and what he thought and how he behaved, he felt welcomed in Jesus' presence. How awesome is that? You see, when Jesus started the movement he called the church, 
He intended it to be a safe place of grace where all kinds of people, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey, would feel welcome to explore who he is and what he can do for us. You see, I think people have a a misunderstanding of what church is supposed to be all about. You see, church is not a perfect place for perfect people to gather to keep our perfect lives perfect. Church is a messy place. It's a messy gathering of messy people with messy lives so that we can all experience the messy grace we all need. And so I, I just want you to know City Church is a messy church. And thank goodness. And, and so I want you to know wherever you are in your journey, whatever you believe or don't believe, whatever mess you have going on in your life, you're welcome here. Uh, this, this is a safe community for you to explore why we believe what we believe about Jesus. But I will say this. We will do our very best to explain why we believe what we believe. We will give you credible evidence and reasons why we believe, and we're going to prompt you to, act, to, to make a decision. Because there is some point in your journey where you do have to decide what you believe. Now, earlier I told you about Dr. Collins' journey, how you know, he was a skeptic. He thought you know, religion was superstitious, didn't buy this faith junk. But a woman's question prodded him to reconsider what he believed. And so uh, the university where he was doing his residency, there was a chaplain there. He went to the chaplain and asked him, hey, okay, I'm wrestling with this. What should I do? And the chaplain asked him, well, have you ever read read the, the accounts of Jesus' life, his miracles, his ministry? He said, well, no. And he said, well, read, read those. And then he told him, and read the spiritual journey of another skeptic named C.S. Lewis. And so as he began to read those two works, he began to reconsider what he believed, and it led him to a point where he felt like he had to make a decision. And uh, he was interviewed by PBS, Public Broadcast uh, System, and this is his own narrative of what happened when he made the decision. These are his words. The idea that you would arrive at faith because it made sense because it was rational, because it was the most appropriate choice when presented with the data, that was a new concept. And yet, reading through the pages of Lewis's book, I came to that conclusion over the course of several very painful weeks. I didn't want this conclusion. I was very happy with the idea that God didn't exist and had no interest in me. And yet at the same time, I could not turn away. I had to keep turning those pages. I had to keep trying to understand this. I had to see where it led. But I still didn't want to make that decision to believe. I struggled with that for many months, really resisting this decision, going forward, going backward. Finally, after about a year, I was on a trip to the Northwest and on a beautiful afternoon hiking in the Cascade Mountains where the remarkable beauty of the creation was around me, it was so overwhelming, I felt I cannot resist this another moment. This is something I have really longed for all my life without realizing it. And now I've got the chance to say yes. So I said yes. I gave my life to Christ, and I've never turned back. That was the most significant moment in my life. You see, Dr. Collins examined the credible evidence. One, of that there is a creator that he could see as a scientist, but two, the evidence for 
Jesus and why we believe what we believe about Jesus. And at a point in his journey, he made a decision based on that evidence. And when he talks about that decision and the difference between looking at the evidence and choosing to believe, he uses a musical metaphor. It's very interesting. This is what he said. It's not enough to read the notes on the page. At some point, you have to hear the music. Faith occurs when you see the notes on the page and you choose to hear the music. Seeing is believing. And I'm asking you to believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God. Now, our prayer team is gonna be available to pray with you, to help you in your journey. Maybe something's going on in your life. I'm asking them to come on down. We have prayer team available in the video cafe as well and online. Uh, if you're watching online, we have people that monitor our Facebook page if you have any prayer requests. Next week, we're gonna look at the third miraculous sign, and this one will be significant because when Jesus performs this sign, he's gonna address what happens when the way of religion collides with the way of love. And this will be significant for some of us who have been burned by religion or hurt by religion. And so I think it's going, gonna be important for us to unpack this sign together. God bless you, go in peace. We'll see you next week. <laughs>